the Podjectivity Network. Let's see how to begin. Uh, you mind if I just like try to riff my way into an intro? Yeah. 
and you might conclude that like, oh, the steroids got to her or something, but no, just a tragic condition that we've made a lot of advances, I guess, but we still haven't nailed it. So she died of a seizure. That's just, it's just sad. Tough one. That's a whole other pod. Steroids. So yeah, let's not go too far down that road. Okay. Uh, one more, one more thing on the Olympics, though, to tag our last episode. Uh, I heard somebody talking on another pod. Might have been Tom Segura talking to Joe Rogan, and they were talking about the Olympics a little bit because I'm sure they heard our pod, and they had a few thoughts. Of uh, course. I came away from it. I've I've had some takes about college athletics before, where I'm kind of out on it. I'm tired of the system. I'm tired of the corporate as corporate nature the corporate nature of the sport uh, the enterprise and those guys were talking the Olympics might be worse that corporate interests and uh, the TV network you know NBC I suppose uh, pour billions of dollars into the International Olympic Committee and you know what do these athletes get they get a nice vacation for sure. They get to stay. They get an unreplaceable, unmatched experience of being in the Olympic Village with athletes from the, the world over. But they're not exactly lying in their pockets, and any notoriety they have is pretty fleeting. And yeah, the crazy Olympic orgy that happens in the Olympic Village, I've heard. Yeah, there's a lot of conflicts I've heard that too. Right. Priceless. But, I mean, that's great. That's a perk. Uh, but, you know, how about a little, a little something for the athletes, you know, to okay, go on. Right. Uh, I, other than the prestige and, you know, the speaking engagements or whatever they open up to you after you hit a medal on your chest, like, that life sounds like an awful lot of sacrifice, especially in gymnastics and things. Maybe Chris can speak to this. That just... You know, you have less of a childhood than Michael Jackson if you, you know, want to compete at an Olympic level in gymnastics. The level of commitment for what return or what gains, like in many other fields, if you were to dedicate and devote that much of your life from that early an age, like, you would assume that could translate to quite a reward financially. Or, you, you know, you would think it would be proportionate to the time and, this, and the effort and the sacrifice. But I don't know. I don't think that's, like Dan was saying, that's not the way that structure is set up. You're just, you're in it for the glory, I guess. Well, it's the, diff- it's the difference, too, between looking at sports as a gift to the participant and character building. Like, when you're a kid and you're in sports that much and dedicating everything you have to it. It's considered a gift to you. You're the athlete. You're getting so much out of it. You're gaining resilience of character and experiences that you'll cherish for the rest of your life. Whereas once you cross the threshold into becoming an adult, sports becomes entertainment for other people. So it is a weird sort of difference because you're still putting in as many hours. You're still working just as hard. The difference is you're a kid in doing it. And so somehow it's supposed to be good for you. But as an adult, if you're doing it, it's somehow good for other people and they pay money to watch you play. 
interesting transition that you go through. To I always felt that way about college, to a degree. I don't want to start a different tangent, but like, at what point are you like, now wait a second, I'm paying you to do all of this work, so that I can get this certificate and then do more do other kinds of work where I can actually get fucking paid for it. You know, uh, so. You know, some of these Olympic Olympians and some of these gymnasts that are meddling, they're pretty young, aren't they? Like, less than 20? I can look up oh, for... Yeah. for I think there's an age limit for gymnastics, I know for sure. It's a huge profit. It's kind of like the, the controversy that's happening in college athletics now about paying these athletes, these student-athletes. Like, once it becomes entertainment and there's a lot of money being made, it's no longer enough to say, hey, you're having a great experience. Enjoy your education, your free education or whatever. That's not enough. So for ice skating, yeah. it's 15. For gymnastics, it's 16. Jesus. That's the cutoff? That's the limit? You have to be at least 16 for gymnastics and at least 15 for ice skating. Oh, it says, must have reached the age of 15 by the previous July 1st for ice skating. Well, Ooh, for other international so I, senior events competitor, other events, not the Olympics, must have reached the age of 14 by the previous July 1st. That's figure wow. skating. That's pretty young. Jesus. So, that said, you know, I brought it up. Maybe I'm too cynical. Uh, maybe. Maybe I should look at the bright side. Maybe all this structure put in place by all of this international committee and all the corporate dollars that flow in to give these athletes that distinct sacred hallowed platform for three weeks i guess that's the question that i am wrestling with i guess is should they be getting a little more or am i looking at it all wrong and they're not in it for those reasons they're in it strictly to compete they don't care if they go home with any money or anything like that. It is strictly the experience and strictly the purest competition on the best mats and best fields and best ice and best water you'll ever touch. Everything is so perfect and so pristine and the refs and judges and everything. It's, it won't ever get better than that. It is perfect. I don't there know. There are many things out there that are that perfect. But like are, how do they out. how do they pay for all their training? I don't. We talked about this a little bit after you were off the yeah. the line last time. Who sponsors? Andy. Who sponsors these athletes? Can you be corporate sponsored and in the Olympics at the same time? Well, if NBC is making that much money or whatever television network by hosting the event, you would think that they have a vested interest in keeping these athletes training, working, at least that. It's weird, too. I mean, I don't, I don't know is my answer, but it's not just American news media that's benefiting from this event. Like, all the, all the outlets around the world must have to, just like in the NBA, you know, the NBA makes a lot of money through its, TV contracts. They don't just broadcast their games for free. So that money has got to filter itself down to organizations that pay for 
athletes to fucking eat and, you know, train in top-notch facilities. I don't... Where else is it coming from? I don't know, but it makes me wonder whether musicians should seek sponsorship the way that athletes do. Oh, they do. I mean... The country do. Their tours are always like, Bud Light presents. I mean smaller. Smaller. Oh, okay. Smaller regional musicians will say if they had sponsors, regional sponsors, instead of... Because they can't make money from CDs anymore or, like, downloading MP3s on Spotify. So maybe their tour, their regional tour, is brought to you by New Glarus Brewing Company. Or, you know what I mean? I wonder if we'll see that. I haven't seen much of that local. But, yeah, the bigger tours, for sure. They got to get paid somehow, just like these athletes have to get paid somehow to do that. Maybe if Croft... Maybe if Mark Craft were more attractive, someone would place <laughs> next to their product. But I think it's going to be a sorry, Mark. He's he's not listening. He is an innocent. He is an innocent. He's got a face for radio. Our first <laughs> guest. Come on, guys. You can't bash our first guest. Stop That's it. That's how guys talk. Stop it. Mark Craft and I started chitting on each other probably like the second time we met each other. That was just the way it happened. Like, oh, this is a brother dynamic. Like. Okay, fuck you. Fuck you more. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of how that works. But go ahead and edit this out. But I got to say, well, it's on my mind. When we were talking about Jesus versus the devil in our last episode in oh. Satanism. Jesus versus Crump. the devil. And Jesus, I argue that Jesus has more fun and can offer you a better time. And you're saying, no, the devil can. Yes, go Mark on. Mark already beat us to this conversation and he's written a brilliant song about it i think with eric castor too but it's called is it gonna be funky oh you know? yeah is it gonna be funky but yeah. i don't remember anything other than that give that another listen maybe an addendum or like an addition to that that podcast splice it in if it's not too late whatever it's too anyway. late it's released already are you not paying attention come on it's got oh, yeah, it's out. The temple of Satan laid out in the song at all? Am I missing that in the song? Don't make this me read those kind of again. Just listen to it, dude. I'm sorry to derail the conversation. Back to the Olympics. Oh. No, that's okay. Well, we talked. We solved the Olympics in the last episode. We haven't uh, though, because now I'm on this question of is when does sports become entertainment? Because kids are de- hockey kids and like soccer kids and gymnastics, they are devoting their lives to these sports. And what are they getting in return? They're getting, in some cases, that most needed thing that a kid has, in some cases, which is approval from a parent who may be living vicariously for their child because they love the game so much and they're too old to play now. And they just, like stage parents or whatever, you know, there's that drives a lot of this. Like, it's entertainment for adults who have kids in these sports. A lot of kids, I think, are pushed and pressured into doing these things to satisfy their, their folks. Hmm. So they get nothing, basically, other than, other than dysfunctional relationships. Somebody is feeling salty 
the youth sports tonight. Uh, <laughs> leave, it, sports, leave, it to the, crazy dude. leave it to the cynical guy to take up for the youth sports. Uh, what they often get uh, would be discipline and teamwork and all those kind of things. Let's not forget that stuff. Like, and I, I'm... I'm a Sydney cynical over here, but those are the things. That's what I jump to first, and what they get, which Did is learning that there's something more important than you. The team is more important than you. If they're being coached properly, if they're learning their game, their sport properly, they're learning that the unit is more important than you. Oh. You will do whatever it takes to fit into that unit. Four passes if before you make a shot. That's the whole Gene Hackman thing in Hoosiers. Four passes before every shot. Uh-oh. I'm transitioning. Yeah. I am transitioning. Four passes before every shot. That's the and team I'll thing. Allow it. I'll allow it so long as I can just quickly interject that Dan. <laughs> I'll allow yeah. it. You're not going to be cynical. I'll have to be cynical for you. And Please. that is that the wholesome version of youth sports and amateur sports and things is that it teaches all of these good moral characteristics, but it's happening inside a culture and in in a society that is capitalist, competitive, cutthroat, and it can sometimes fuel our worst instincts. And you see the parent raging at the volunteer teenage ref, and, you know... And, and and all sorts of just the dark side of our nature that wants to win at any cost and forgets her principles and hits Nancy Kerrigan in the knee with a lead pipe and for, uh, you know, so kids can learn as many bad lessons as they can good lessons in sports, like you said, depending on who's coaching them. True. Who you, who you come up against when you play as a player. I saw some of the worst of humanity from my own teammates who were, you know, jealous of the young guy who was coming up and trying to take their playing time or whatever else. Like, you can... You mean you mean when you played in college? You can bring out the best people. You can bring out the worst. Um, I get what Dan's saying, and I think we should carry that over into the Hoosiers conversation about... You know, competition can 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 improve the marketplace. Can can do all sorts of wonderful things to motivate humanity and bring out our best. But it can also, you know, it can be dangerous, unchecked, and and as much as we try and control it, you know, sometimes a jackass is holding the whistle, and people get traumatized, and like the worst of our nature is given, you know, free reign, sort of, or encouraged, so. Seen it. Definitely seen it. Yeah. Yeah. As luck would have it, with no planning at all, Chris and I both watched Hoosiers last night. <laughs> like, like 20 minutes apart, if you can believe it. Wow. Uh, all this talk of, youth, of uh, amateur sports and the Olympics and Man, it finally made it to it finally made it to basketball. And right now is the time of year where we should all be uh, nursing our March Madness hangovers and uh, 
talking about, man, wasn't that a great tournament? And all there is this year is a big void. Are people sad? I don't watch March Madness. Are, are people grieving this, or are they just watching something else? CBS is running a lot of uh, – CBS Sports Network ran, a, ran some classic March Madness games, but they ran a very limited sample of games. I There was only – Eight or ten different games I saw, and they just ran on a perpetual loop. That's Dan it. would be a better guy to ask about this specifically because he's the guy who used to create Big Bracket. So, Chris, you're familiar with the bracket that you've probably seen in the paper or uh, online? It is a tournament where it's elimination based on two teams playing each other, one gets eliminated, and they move on, like tennis, right? Yes. There are four regions each region is seated one to 16 one plays 16 two plays 15 etc and yes is it, it is ra- a single is it a, elimination tournament is it a it random forward that way until there is a champion is yes. it a random draw how do they decide who plays who oh boy there is a committee made up of myself the, and the money changers. <laughs> what? Did I say the money changers in the temple? I meant athletic directors. <laughs> uh, there's a committee of athletic directors, let's say a dozen or so ADs from big schools, and they sit in a room for about a week leading up to the announcement of the bracket, and they make all these choices behind closed doors about what seed each team is going to get and, just as importantly, what city will they play in. They don't play it. Oh. And somewhat, it's not random? It's decided? That's interesting. Well, it has to be. They couldn't just... It, it, this is all very regimented and very scheduled. Uh, so... Okay. There are... So there's... You have to have 32 first-round games... And I believe that takes place in eight cities. That first round takes place in eight cities. And each city is treated to two games on one night and then one game the following night to narrow that field down. There is data that they're looking at. It should be said, Chris, for your benefit quickly, that does determine who gets invited to the big dance, as they call it, and who doesn't. You have to win a certain number of games, for instance, to be considered. And also, you get an automatic berth into the big dance if you win your conference tournament at the end of the year. So, theoretically, you could lose every game in the regular season, but if you catch fire and and win every game at the end of the season, like tournament before the big tournament for just your conference, you get invited to the big dance and you could win a championship, theoretically. Sorry if I just muddied the waters there. Okay. Right, Dan? You with us so far there, Chris? Pretty much. Okay, go ahead. Uh, And yeah, the teams play a full regular season. And your record and the strength of your conference and all that stuff figures in pretty heavy. And then after your season is over, you play a tournament in your conference. Not all the conferences used to do that. It used to just be you play everyone in your conference twice. However you end up, that's kind of your standings. But 
a conference tournament is just another great way to make a whole bunch more revenue going into the big dance. Uh, and then, yeah, after those conference tournaments, that committee of athletic directors seeds all the teams one to 60 now they do it one to 68 but let's for the purposes of our discussion those other four teams they just we're going to keep it to 64 that's the beautiful number that's the symmetrical number and the teams at the there's always a few teams that got left out that feel like they should be in etc there's always arguments about like do we really need eight or nine teams from this giant conference when we could have maybe a second or third team from a smaller conference. Same arguments every year. But like anything in sports, there's a certain cruelty and a certain coldness to it that, well, you just didn't make it this year, and you'll have to try harder next year to get back here. Hmm. So there's a lot of that. That's beautiful. So to the question of our people missing it, uh, most of the people I encounter know that I'm a psycho bracket fan. Uh, and so I, the people I've been talking to lately, yes, even in social isolation and social distancing, I still talk to human beings. <laughs> and I talk to people, and a lot of people ask me how I'm holding up. Because <laughs> most people don't care that much. They can kind of take it or leave it. They might see some highlights. They might catch a game or two but I watch as much of the broadcast as possible. Um, and it was surprising how quickly I just kind of assimilated. Ah, interesting. The night when they took, when the, yeah, when the NBA shut down, uh, well, you're March 12th or whatever. There was so much, so much happened in that like 48 hour period there. Um, the speculation right at that moment was that the tournament was still going to go on, which came with the immediate backlash of like, Oh, these corporate, these greedy corporate uh, interests, they're going to put this thing on at risk of human life and whatever. Well, it didn't take long for them to cave to. And it got, it all, all the basketball went away in one fateful night. Uh, and I was amazed how quickly I just assimilated, like, huh, there's, no, I guess there's no basketball. I guess I'll do something else. Well, we, we face that every year at the end of the season. We have a little more closure in other years than we had this year. But, I mean, we have that drought where it's just like, oh, Jesus, it's baseball season. Who cares? Or whatever, you know, and sorry to all the baseball fans, but, you know, and, and really every other sport except uh, hoops and cage fighting are the only things that can hold my interest anymore. And hoops only when it gets to, like, playoffs. Or the journey, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, so, there's yeah, a lot of choices would, out there to do with what to do with your time. It's uh, yeah, this would have been probably uh, more difficult to adjust to prior to streaming services. True. What do we do? You have the other other things to binge on. It's like basketball binge mode is what the bracket is, though, isn't it? It is, and it's it sets you up like you come down off of that that gorging, you know, you catch your breath when you can finally breathe again after you've gorged on so much basketball. And then you go, holy shit, it's the first round of the NBA playoffs. And it just builds to a whole nother mountain. It crescendos in a whole nother, and that's like a different sport. 
watching after watching the college tournament and then watching the NBA playoffs, it's it's night and day. It's totally different. I've become more of an NBA fan recently, the past I don't know five ten years. Uh, and I don't want to shit on college basketball. It's still a great product. And actually, you know, this year I was starting to watch more season and conference tournament basketball. And damned if I didn't see, of all the years for the for the bracket to get canceled, this was a terrible year for that to happen. Because there were some teams who have not been relevant in a very long time, maybe ever, who were a serious threat to go deep, if not win the title. Uh, the Dayton Flyers, they haven't been relevant in big-time basketball since, like, I mean, they're decent, but I mean a championship level. Much like the Badgers hadn't been to a champion, played at a championship level since like the 40s until they got there in 2015. It was the same story for the Dayton Flyers. They hadn't been in the, a real threat since like 1952 or something. And yet right. they had this magical team that somehow got assembled. And they were a serious threat for the title. And Dayton, joined by Gonzaga, who who's been good for a great many years, but they're still an outsider. They've been to one title game and they lost. They're still an outsider though. They're not, they're not in that club yet. They're not Duke or North Carolina or UCLA or Indiana or any of the Kentucky, Kansas, the blue bloods. Um, and there was a couple other teams, uh, the Creighton blue Jays from Nebraska. Uh, they were, a, they were a weird threat. They got really hot and looked serious. Uh, so it was a it was a terrible year for the bracket to go away. If you let it play out this year, it, I, I'm you know you could always say this, I guess, but it really was going to be awesome this year. And the level of play that I was seeing, I think the college game is catching up a little bit. It went through a little lull. Things go through phases, and I think the college game is starting to catch up a little bit. It's playing a little more like the NBA. Uh, better offense, not as uh, not as crowded, a more spaced out game. So it's just too bad that it went away this year. People started shooting three pointers from the half court line in college now, like they have in the pros. Uh, of course, there is a little bit more of a green light there, but not not that much. I, to my eye, I was not seeing that kind of range on these kids. I wonder if by the time we're 80, if we live that long, if they'll just be inbounding it and then shooting it. Essentially, <laughs> a full court bumper is going to be the evolution of the game because the range of the threes is just going further and further back. It's fucking absurd. Yeah. Well, uh, I just heard a somewhat dated interview. Uh, Bill Simmons and Jalen Rose sat down with Kobe. This had to be, it's like when Kobe released his first doc and he showed up on Bill, I think he had an HBO show at that time. And so this is when Kobe retired from basketball and became a producer and an artist. What, what was that? Three, four years ago? I mean, right. time goes pretty weird. And they were, they were talking about it then. Like Kevin Durant was still on the thunder at this time. Uh, uh, the Warriors were still a bit of a new phenomenon at this time. And Jalen and Bill commented on how the game seems to be evolving. 
and they said, you know, Kobe, what do you think? Like, we're not sure what to make of this. And all Kobe had said was, it'll evolve. Like, just when everybody thought it was too physical, it got all spread out, and people start shooting from farther and farther away. And then it'll just evolve again. It depends on who the players are and what kind of teams get assembled. It'll evolve. But at the moment, it would seem that we're headed towards the inbound shot. Just back and forth. Kind of like Olympic ping pong. (laughs) So the venerable, the great Dick Higgs is a product of northeastern Indiana. The closest real town is Marion. Marion's produced a couple of good basketball players that went on to play for the Hoosiers. Uh, but that's that's where Dick came from. Born in the 30s. Uh, he went to a one-room school, K-12, through called Banco. Called what? Uh, B-A-N-Q-U-O from Shakespeare, Banco. Hmm. And... This movie came along, like, the Higgs family, we didn't go to the movies very often. We went to Pete's Dragon. We went to Raiders of the Lost Ark. We went to Empire Strikes Back. And we went to Hoosiers. Mm. It was important. It was a, it was a family mission. It was a directive. Because we, it was special to us. Because Dick was from Indiana, and we were Hoosier fans, and we lived and died for it. And that's the whole Bob Knight angle in my life as a youth. I'm listening, uh, go on. So this movie comes out, and my notes here, the opening is very patient and beautiful and is scored perfectly, showing what things looked like then. Mm-hmm. And the little town that Dick went to school in really was little more than an intersection, a general store, a church, a school, a cemetery. Like, that's all it was. The little general store was called Green Gables, and that's where you played catch and drank Coke Mm -hmm. and listened to baseball on the radio and stuff in the summer. Like, my dad's origin story is that area at that time. He graduated from high school in 1951. Huh. And the movie starts out saying, whatever, Indiana, 1951. So it's like a year removed or a year earlier or after when he graduated. And take it from somebody who grew up there, they got it right. They got every detail of that small town and what the countryside looked like and what the farms looked like. What were they? They got it all right. What were Hoosiers? Oh my god. It was his youth. It was his it was right lifted right out of the photo album of his mind. What were the What was Barbara Hershey working on in the farm area? What were those stocks? <laughs> what? That's a fucking great question because I have no idea. It wasn't corn. What the fuck was that? That is my the speculation on that. Oh, man. My dad speculated that that was sorghum. Okay. And you're going to have to Google that because I don't know what that even is. I don't even know how, to, yeah, how to Google that. It was, uh, that was bizarre. It wasn't like baling hay or picking corn. It was no, like they some were weird snapping grinder. it. 
and kind of stripping it and crunching it in a mill? No idea. That's a good call. That is the one, that's one mystery from that that I just can't answer. I'd love to just. Maybe one of our listeners answer. knows and can email us at projectivity at gmail.com to tell us nice what the fuck are they working on in that barn? No, so that, watching it last night brought a lot of that back. Uh, Dick's been dead for two years, and I haven't seen this in probably ten years, and it was great to roll credits, you know, opening credits on that. The long dirt roads, he stops. That intersection where the church is, that part, that is what, that's what my dad's little town looked like in my mind. You know, Uh. it's... It's all, it's very much alive for me when you watch this movie. Uh, they get the whole experience here. You can't talk about Jimmy Chitwood without talking about Larry Bird. Larry Legend. Of course. And, and Bird is that dead-eye, sharp-shooting white dude from the sticks of Indiana who was so poor growing up that he didn't have proper basketball so they had a tin can nailed to the side of the garage, and he had like a racquetball or some kind of little ball that he, he had to shoot with kind of an awkward release because it was such a small ball. And that, so he developed this unorthodox shooting release that carried him to the NBA and the Hall of Fame. Wow. That's part also- of it. Right, it's just there's some allure about the kid who comes from fucking nothing. As the odds of getting no father, Larry Bird's dad killed himself, I think. True. So, you know, you can't not root for that success story, right? And the 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 chip on your shoulder that carries you to the level that Larry Bird got to. Uh, how do you how do you even we can't understand, we can't quantify that. The uh, burning desire and relentless relentless spirit to come yeah. from nowhere and own basketball for several years. That it's yeah. it, the one it, of real life Hoosiers. It's real life Hoosiers. Yeah. It's real life Hoosiers. Except Jimmy was very modest. He let his play do the talking. Ah, true. And one of the things that I found most fascinating about Bird's legacy is he came from French Lick, Indiana. <laughs> nowhere. Uh, like, he, I come from a small town, and when you play with your buddies and whatnot, you talk shit to each other a little bit or whatever, but it wasn't like inner city. Nothing could really compare you for the psychological warfare that, you know, has risen out of, like, the inner city black basketball culture that yeah. he came into as this white dude, white minority in the NBA. And Larry Bird's the biggest shit talker of all of them. He's a legendary shit talker in, 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 in shooter. Like, his psychological game was was almost as potent as his shooting, right? Huh. There's a hundred videos on YouTube of players saying, this is the mouthiest fucking guy that I ever shared the court with. And he talked me right off the floor. 
He broke me before the game started. Where did that swagger come from? Where did this kid who came from nothing and and had no right to have that kind of swagger, how did that translate to him walking into a, a locker room before a game? Be like, hey, which one of you sorry motherfuckers is guarding me tonight? <laughs> That's where it comes from. It yeah. comes from a dirt poor family that dad killed himself. It's that built a fire in him that couldn't be put out, and he, he it never went away. It, ne- it just never went away. And he never, no matter how good he was, he never stopped trying to be better and getting better. All that, his whole career never stopped until his body broke down. That only adds to the legend. Sorry, that's weird, but, you know, like, Fuck yeah. with what an athlete like Dan Gable in wrestling, he's an Iowa wrestling legend. And part of the legend of this guy is like people, it's tragic, but you garner a certain sort of respect for people when you've had to have all your hips and knees and everything replaced as an old man because you fucking trained so hard. And your back is just destroyed because you dove after so many loose balls. And yes, it's just a game, but. When anybody commits themselves or sacrifices their health in the pursuit of something, what they did it for is sort of immaterial, beside the point. You just have to give credit for the fact that they are that committed to anything, you know, that, what's a hip? I'll just get another one. Later. And we've all we've all heard the axiom or the the old uh, saying that for for it, it's perfect for kids in sports that if you're when you're out practicing uh, somewhere there is somebody that is practice when you're tired there's somebody out there who's practicing harder than you and when you quit they're still practicing and not to make this all about Larry Bird but any you know. Uh, even when I was a kid and thought I was going to play in the NBA for a short time, that was in my mind. My dad said shit to me like that, that somewhere out there, there's somebody practicing harder than you. And that's not original. That's a lot of people say that, but Larry Bird had that, but he believed that. And he believed, nope, there is no other person that's going to practice longer than me. Fuck that. Well, I'm the one that's practicing longer. It also must be said that Larry Bird was six, nine and possessed otherworldly coordination and touch that he can refine through his work. And I wonder if there are many dads that are saying things like, hey, son, somewhere somebody's not practicing as much as you are, but they're just a lot more genetically gifted so they don't have to work as hard and they're still going to beat you no matter how hard you work. So go get them. Does anyone, Andy, do you know the name of the girl... The woman who is ultimate, she's like an ultimate fighter. She's super ferocious. Ronda Rousey? Yeah, Ronda. She had a really good quote. We were talking about the difference between karate and judo in the last podcast, and she was an Olympic, I think, or at least like a nationally recognized competitor in judo. Her mom was a big judo person, and that was her... That was her go-to move, is she would just take her, her opponent and throw him, like, 
a ragdoll, ragdoll people to the ground and then find so, someone to submission. So this is when she was coming up in judo, her mom had a line to her, and this is what it was. You're not training to be the best in the world. You're training to be the best in the world on your worst day. Oh. Gosh. Neat. That's a fucking great line. I know. That's what you were, that, when you were talking about Larry Bird, that's what, that made me think about that. Ronda wow. Rousey. Because there, it, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're born with that kind of passion and fire that never gets extinguished or if life experience puts it there. Why? I don't know. It sounds like Larry Bird. A little element of drive that's just inherent or genetic as much as he is 6'9 that allowed him to become who he became. I mean, it can't all be I've got to prove myself because I'm in a desperate situation. But the desperate situation is getting me a good motivator. Got to get out of here. Got to get out of here. Yeah. And Larry Bird had a bunch of siblings, and I've never heard of any of them. So it's it's that thing where yeah they all grew up in the same house and whatever, and they all ate the same food and had the same life, except one of them just fucking couldn't be stopped one, yeah. one of them was the relentless force um i'm gonna start talking about gene hackman movies and i just want to say i don't think there's any duds except that he did every superman sequel i think we did, uh, oh my god he's lex luther uh with richard Pryor. this isn't All right, are we? i'd like to find a chronological, because this one that I have is not chronological, and that's not going to be what I want. Oh, you must not be on IMDb, eh? Eh? He did a little bit of a, a trans role before his time in the birdcage, if you recall. Yeah, I remember oh that. God. Chris, let me try that again if you don't like A. You must not have IMDb, hey. Hey. I can't. I Whichever have, you prefer, A I, or A. I, I can do either. Oh, I How see. How hot was Gene Hackman as a woman in the birdcage? Not hot to... at all. No. Jeez. Over my skis, I, I have never seen the birdcage. I got oh. I know about it. I'm aware of it. I know what it is. It's Nathan Lane and Robin Williams, and I know what it is. And it's the Hank Azaria, and, not, and I forgot all about Gene Hackman, but yeah, I've never seen it. And this um, is not having it. What? What, what, what? I'm going to go over some of the highlights. Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, I know that this is a movie I should have seen but haven't. It's called The Conversation, 1974. I think I've seen that. I think I've seen that. Young Frankenstein. What? Who is he in Young Frankenstein? I can tell you. He's a blind guy. He's a blind guy in the cabin who pours Frankenstein like tea all over Frankenstein, and the, that's the, Gene Hackman. Motherfuck. Okay. Um. There we go. There's so many good ones. You. It's like it's just unbelievable. I'm gonna skip some of them. Superman. Superman two. Terrific. 
Lex Luthor. I know. And honestly, when you look at the incredible vast amount of superhero movies now and the number of villains and superstar celebrity villains that are coming out, he still is like one of the best villains, I think. Super believable. Right? If Jack Nicholson if Jack Nicholson makes that Michael Keaton Batman movie, Gene Hackman makes Superman yes. as an incredible leading man villain. And one of the first real actors to say, Yeah, I'll be in a, a movie about Superman like about a superhero right. comic books. What? Damn. Like he was just like, uh, Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. We also have uh Marlon Brando making an appearance talking talking about legendary actors Superman, right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Kal-El or Jor-El Ka- or Jor-El. He's Jor-El. Jor-El. Superman's Kal-El. Jor-El. Son of Jor-El. And kal And didn't Nick Cage name his son Kal-El? He did. Uh, I, I'm I, almost positive. I, 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 yeah, I'll rubber stamp that. I'm sure he did. I, I have to look it up now. If we're going to talk Gene Hackman roles, I'll tell you probably I blame my dad for my love of westerns and one of my all-time favorites is Unforgiven with Spectacular Nath. We're not there yet, though. But Keep it coming. I'm coming. I'm sort of skipping some. So Reds? Did you guys see Reds? No? Did not. Okay, he's with Matt Dillon. He's with Matt Dillon in Target, Hoosiers, Superman, one, two, three, four, No Way Out with Kevin Costner. Do you guys remember that? Mississippi Burning. I haven't seen it. I remember No Way Out, but I haven't seen it. Mississippi Burning. Oh God. He's in. He's in Postcards from the Edge with Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine. That's weird. Class Action. That was super good. Oh, this might be the dud. Loose Cannons. I think that's with Dan Aykroyd. Sounds sounds like uh, they came up with the name before they had a story. Hmm. And then go ahead. Unforgiven. What do you like about it? It's one of these you'd almost better not get me started, but... You know, Clint Eastwood, first of all, deconstructing its legacy and the whole myth of the Western hero and painting a deeply human portrait of, like, a broken man who was this mythical badass but isn't proud of it because he was drunk all the time and, you know, has has regrets and is haunted and met a woman who helped him changed his ways and he had some kids but fell on hard times and had to go back to doing what he knew how to do with his fucking kill people or bounty and Gene Hackman is a sheriff who is his own kind of upstanding badass and they're like two righteous characters set on this trajectory towards each other in this showdown and you know it's it's just it's an epic confrontation at the end because you kind of respect and love both of them by the time they meet each other. And neither one is all good or all bad. There's no black hat and white hat in this Western. 
it's just, you know, two kind of mighty figures who are deeply flawed, but also incredibly strong in their own way to the death. And it's a, it's a great, it's a great movie that doesn't have two leading men. It has Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, and Morgan Freeman. Boom. Uh, all in unique roles. And yeah, Gene Hackman, dude, that his character, the he's also, much like Clint has tried to give up the killing. Uh share what's his name in that? God damn it. He he's given up he's given up tri- being a badass. He's he's building a house, he's doing a poor job. He's just trying to he, he spent all of his years. Uh, as a lawman and in all the shit. Now he just wants to like sit on the porch. You know, he just, he doesn't want this anymore, but then it, it's visited upon him by the events of the film. And Oh God. Great. Great, great, great. That movie doesn't work without him. There's something, there's something about Gene Hackman too, that it's not just the character he's playing. I feel this way about Leo DiCaprio and, uh, Brad Pitt, of course thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how charismatic they are, there's something about Gene Hackman that I don't just care about the part that he's playing. I care about the person behind the character. I just want to watch him on screen. I don't care what character he's playing. I just want more of him. It doesn't matter what he's playing. And I feel like that quality in an actor is so precious and to have it without leading man looks is incredible you know it's not just that he's pretty and you want to keep watching him it's that he's got such incredible charisma there's some like talent talent and there's just a quality to him where you just want to keep watching him his his strength like there's this there's this subplot sort of an unforgiven where they're establishing his character and what who he has been in the sense and mm-hmm. like what happens when you cross him where this this guy comes into town to pursue a bounty and do some killing and conduct some business that he's not having in his town and he's an English Bob you remember English Bob Dan another Bob, great actor. Richard Harris Richard Harris yeah, the great Richard Harris. And, you know, he he's, he's shown himself to be, like, he's making this attempt to be decent and, 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 and distance himself from the brutality of the, the West and of his past. But when this guy comes in and crosses the line, he makes an example of him. And he kicks the ever-loving shit out of him in front of everybody <laughs> on the main street. Yep. And it's brutal, but it's also kind of glorious because, I don't know, there's something satisfying about it. It goes, I think it's related to that kind of strength of him going into the barbershop and being like, yeah, you guys are full of shit. Yep. Talk later. You know, to, to witness somebody convincingly have the strength of their conviction to be like, all right, now's the time to prove myself and and show you all what's up. This is what's up. Boot to the face! Yeah. You know, 
It gets bloody. It gets real bloody and dirty. I'm going to watch that again. I haven't seen it in such a long time. The needs are over. You know, the person who can just lay it down directly and in such a way that isn't compromising. You know, he does uncompromising badass so, so well. Uh, uh. Uncompromising badass. That should be... What's next? When what he comes di- after Unforgiven? That should be on the tombstone, though. When, when, when he, if he has a tombstone, uncompromising badass, it will be, that's what will be on it. Um, charming, uncompromising badass. Charming, charismatic, uncompromising badass. The Firm. That's my t- no, I'm sorry, but what? No. Do you guys remember The Firm? Crimson. Oh, oh my God. He's fucking phenomenal in The Firm. Mm. Crimson Tide. Oh, 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 he's fucking phenomenal in Crimson Tide. Wyatt Earp. Get Shorty. Uh, I tried to watch Wyatt Earp recently, and it's just it's just not a good movie. I just don't like it. Get Go sh- ahead. Get Shorty. Fucking phenomenal. The- Get Shorty does well. It demonstrates that he's also funny. Hilarious. Yes. What's his name and what's his name and Get Shorty? Harry oh, Zim. Harry Zim. So how versatile can one man be? That's what I'm saying. Best. I said that he has an arsenal. He can just pull whatever emotion, any quality. He can just do it. Effortlessly. He's like a. He's funnier than Leo. Leo may be prettier, but he's funnier. And he and and get shorty. One of my personal favorites of all time. He's a washed up, drunken, always hungover loser, <laughs> just getting by, making bad pictures, whatever. Perfect. He's fucking perfect in that. Leading <laughs> man power in that role. Just great. The Quick and the Dead with Russell Crowe. Sharon, and Sharon Stone. And Sharon Stone. And that looks like Leo. Was Leo in that? What? Didn't see it. Okay. Just know about it. Quick and the Dead. It's a Western. Um, Extreme Measures with Hugh Grant. The Chamber. Mm. Absolute mm. Power. Again with Clint Eastwood. Absolute Power. Absolute Power with Clint Eastwood. I think I saw that. Yeah. And then The Birdcage. Enemy of the State with Will Smith. Okay. Twilight. Kind of like that absolute power thing. Kind of in that vein. Yeah. Under Suspicion with Morgan Freeman. Looks like Twilight with with uh, Paul Newman. Royal Whoa. Tenenbaums. Awesome. Oh, the Royal... He plays Royal Tenenbaum. And so good. I, without seeing the list that you're looking at, I'm going to speculate that his movie credits dry up pretty fast after that. Um... He plays in a football movie. It looks like Keanu Reeves. It's called The Replacements. The Mexican yep. with Brad Pitt and Julie Roberts. But then this is a good one. It makes up for everything. Heist. Tell me you've seen Heist. that. Heist with Danny DeVito. That's a good one. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. Not sure. Unclear. Unclear. Okay. Um, and then... Behind Enemy Lines. Great fucking movie. Yeah. Owen Wilson. Behind Enemy, Behind Enemy Lines is uh, Russian flavor. Owen Wilson. He's he's in Enemy Territory. And then I've seen it. Where does it? Where does that take place? Do you remember? Oh, is dude. it a Russian? It feels like a Russian thing. Um, I don't remember. I'm. I don't have the... I just have the list of movies pulled up. I'm not going to go. Sure. That's fine. That's fine. He I, made... He from made... memory, I would say that 
Royal playing Royal Tannenbaum is like his last great role. Runaway Jury. And then, and then once he he's the guy that when it when he decided it was time to go, he just hung it up. There is no like farewell tour. He just stopped. He did Runaway Jury after Royal Tenenbaums, and that was a good movie. John Cusack was in it. That was pretty good. Okay. And then he did Welcome to Mooseport, and I think that's it. I've got a lot of strong takes on Royal Tenenbaums and his role. He's a, he's, if that's his, to me, that's his swan song. That is a spectacular performance from him. He's so good. Playing a, a, a deeply flawed, but... Boy, can you say, I don't even know if you can say he's decent, but at least he, I think he finds decent at the end of his life. Um, great, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. I'm a sucker for everything he does. Um, and I think that's a enduring character. And who else, who else but Gene Hackman could play that? He's perfect. He's goddamn perfect in that. pop would would he sacrifice a win if it meant bringing a team together fuck yeah would he absolutely i a a regular season game to make a point i absolutely pop i will i hope you're comfortable with me speaking for you we should call Uh, we should call him and see what he thinks about hoosiers bring him into this right now I bet he doesn't have a lot of patience for Zoom, though. Not a, <laughs> not a chance. No, but I mean, that was the anomaly of Popovich, in a sense, is that in that era of stars dominating the ball and having the designated scorer and all of that, he would produce this, this team that really shared the ball, distributed it, and was successful. You know, they were... They were an unselfish organization that also got results. You know, like, there's this idea, I think, with socialism that, that like, if you share, you're going to sacrifice, and in the end, you're going to suffer for it. But, like, San Antonio wasn't suffering. They got championships. Okay. I'm going to go, based on the stretch that you made earlier... Is social distancing just us being a team? Is that what's happening? You brought the point out in your in your blog, 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 uh, or essay. But what was I talking about? Is social distancing us being a team? And the idea of sacrificing our freedoms, in a sense, of restricting our movements and all of that for consideration for other people. It touches on this point of, like, why does it take a crisis and a pandemic for us to make these this level of sacrifice or these kind of sacrifices? But absolutely, it's a, it's a beautiful expression, I think, of people's ability to, you know, to sacrifice for the greater good. We made it a long way before we mentioned COVID. Put on us for that one. Uh, <laughs> but I agree. Uh, we had the advantage 
of some game film on these other countries. Like, uh, ah, notably, game film. Interesting. Notably Italy, uh, who was kind of like, let's just keep smoking and going to restaurants. Fuck it. You know, it'll be fine. <laughs> and they, all we hear now is how fucking bad it is there. And how they, there's been those videos. Oh, Jesus Christ. The era we live in. There's all those videos of like Italian people saying what they would have told themselves like two weeks ago or whatever. Remember that? Yeah. Like, of course. What you would have told them. Okay. That was what made America go, oh, are we listening to this now? Is this something we need to pay attention to? It was we YouTube. And I've been thinking lately that uh, we did a we did a tremendous job here. Uh, I know I obsess about sports a lot, but when you when you shut your sports down, oh. the magnitude of that industry, unbelievable. That, that's what made me. I'm a fucking American jackass. That's what made me finally take notice. That and a guy that I heard on Joe Rogan and some other stuff, but. Uh, I think we did a hell of a job to break up our crowds and like not to go on a whole COVID thing, but I think we're coming to the end of it here. You can't keep people cooped up forever. At some point we have to just get out of our houses, go to restaurants. We have to live again. We have to live normal lives again, but we've done a hell of a job for five weeks of being team players, of breaking up our crowds, keeping to ourselves, stay in your house with your own sick family, ride it out, and now I think we're coming. I think we're coming to the end of it. But I disagree. I don't. I don't think we're coming to the end of it. <laughs> I wish I could believe you, Dan, but I mean, I think that honest assessment from everything I hear is we don't know. Do we? Mm. We don't know. That's my, that's my, that's not based, my take is not based on anything but my own uh, spidey sense. Uh, that like, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I think we're coming to yeah. the end of phase one, the end of and the I, extreme phase, and then yeah. it will be phase two, which is, oh, this looks different now in terms of, yeah, we flattened the curve, but people are still getting sick. It just means more people will get sick over a longer period of time. But the the question of the team sport is, is what I wanted to really ask about because I feel like... Oh, boy. I don't know who the coach is at this point. Right now, we are a coachless team. Because the president is a moron. The CDC has so terrific. The CDC has information, but right now it's scare tactics that are being used for the most part to try to keep people in line for what they're supposed to be doing. So who's our coach, I guess, is my question. People are looking for a coach and I don't see one. Someone who can who is someone who can inspire, but I'm gonna read this to this is what Gene Hackman said. I'm going to pull it up because it struck me enough that I I wrote it down. Yes. He goes, uh, what I say when it comes to this basketball team is the law. Absolutely. The law. Absolutely and without discussion. 
And everyone's like, yeah, <laughs> okay, when it comes to basketball, that's right, we will follow you. But I feel like we don't have someone that we trust that much to say, I will follow you absolutely. I don't, anyways. And that's why I think there has to be a balance. Because it goes we back to what... Shut, we can't shut life down indefinitely. Right. It's, it's people, people whose livelihood depends on eating and drinking and being merry or going to the movies or whatever... I, I just that's that's my personal feeling of it. it we, you have to leave it up to people to make choices for themselves. You can still get relatively unbiased, unbiased information, like if what we should be doing right now, if the leaders that we should be turning to and listening to are, say, the scientific community, the medical community, people who study viruses, people who know, you know, how to respond and how to react to this as it evolves as things move on, NPR, news outlets like that, checking in daily, getting getting word from there as as monotonous and tedious as it can be to slog through that day by day. Like we're not completely without educated voices and level reasoned, you know, measured sort of responses to this that are keeping us up to date and informed if you're willing to tune in and hear COVID, True, COVID, COVID, but I want a coach. I don't want someone just feeding my brain facts, the current facts based on the numbers that they have. I don't want but statistics. I, I want a coach. There's, there, there's coaching in there. They're, they're interviewing people who are experts saying, this is what we need to do now. This is what I say we should do now. And it gives you an opportunity to say, okay, I trust that voice a lot more than I do what's coming from the administration or, you know, the governor or the Supreme Court, for that matter, uh, right now with the... You know who the you know who the coaches are for me right now are the people that I see in hospice that are... Because I should say I'm working for hospice as a massage therapist. There's a lot of patients that I can't see now. But the people who are inspiring me... The coaches, so to speak, are the ones who are like, no matter what the statistics say or um, what the what the CDC is saying, we can follow all those guidelines, but our job remains the same. We enrich lives. We enhance people's experience of their lives. We make connections. We build relationships. That is sort of the coaching element for me. It's like, Dan's freaking out. <laughs> what is it, Dan? Uh, no, on a, for the last couple of minutes here, I've been trying to find a way to grab the wheel and get it back on the Hoosiers road and get off of COVID <laughs> for this to be a COVID-free zone. <laughs> Solving everything should be a COVID-free zone, but you are such a deft podcaster that you have made it, you have put it in a context that's actually related to what we were talking about, is that where is our fucking coach? That's right. Where, who's our coach here? I want to hear a coach. And uh, I'm going to give a shout-out to a listener here. 
Amy Bertram, if you're out there, me, a uh, good friend from way back. Uh, she's a nurse up in the cities. And on March 12th, when the shit started hitting the fan and the stories started hitting Twitter that like the UW was going to close down. And by the end of that day, the, uh, the NBA had shut down. I was panicking. Conspiracy Dan was texting feverishly. My carpal tunnel is worse. Ever <laughs> since that day, I was texting so feverishly. Uh, but one of the people I texted was Amy Bertram. And out of just desperation of like, you're in, you're in healthcare. Like, what the fuck is going on? And she gave me some of the most sobering yet reassuring response I could have imagined. I shared it with lots of people who said, geez, man, thanks for that. Like that's, there's an inside take. And more recently I reached back out to her. It took her a few days to get back to me because she's fucking busy at work. Uh, and for all my cavalier attitude, I I'm always that way about stuff. You guys know that. Um, and I think anybody listening probably knows that too, is I've got a certain angle on things. And, uh, she got back to me the other day and she told me like, dude, the shit you see on the news is real. I'm seeing it every day. Those numbers are not fake. It is real. Uh, that's been very sobering. And in a way, Amy Bertram has been my coach. Oh, that's, that's why, awesome. That's why I want to ask from is people I know. Uh, sure, there's people on podcasts and stuff. Like, Rogan's got good guests. Um, but I'm looking for answers from people that I know. This uh, is... A guy that I used to work with, his wife, uh, was is the only, still the only person in my personal orbit that I know has tested and came back positive for it. So I ask him. I, I don't read stuff. Uh, I, ask, I ask him, like, what did they tell you? What did you do? And I ask Amy Bertram, what the fuck is going on? What this should is I, totally. What should I think right now? This is in keeping with your original, um, from day one, what is true? Yeah. Dave Chappelle changed the way that you looked at news. And yes. what is given to you through mass media and how information gets shared and getting it from the source of people who are seeing it is different than getting it from a generalized overview of yeah. these are the numbers. It's different to talk to someone who's like, hey, I went to work and this is what I saw. So it feels like the perfect um, sort of validation of that that is how you know what's true because you're talking to people that have had it and you're talking to people that um have worked with it and that is how i feel too yeah. the the infor the information that i trust is coming through my place of work through hospice those are the numbers that i'm looking at and those are the the um the way of approaching it that feels more realistic which is the job is the same we're still interacting with people. How do we do it, you know, safely? And da 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 da. It's sort of like 
one to one. It's that is what I love about what's happening is people are coming together one to one. Relationships are becoming of primary importance above everything else. I, I should say, going back to NPR, though, even though it's still edited through a media filter or whatever, they're doing lovely segments of like, you know, what's this experience like on the ground from someone who's experiencing it as an ER doctor in such and such. And then there's someone sharing a personal experience on the ground from different remote locations and you know it's not all you know the spoken from the remove of you know analysis and spin and whatever else it's you're getting some direct you know input from people who are for those of us who might not necessarily have people in our lives who are connected system or and they're finding they're finding Amy Bertram and they're finding that guy's wife to tell yeah. their story so that is getting out there there is a source where that kind of stuff is getting around so like yeah here yeah oh the headphones are back on what does that mean <laughs> I, I never shut the fuck up and you know I was sharing a lot of that stuff that that guy was texting me uh on every chain I could. I was really glad uh, that you did, honestly. And those really did. Well, and everybody knows that I never shut the fuck up anyway. But <laughs> that's not true. That felt it felt relevant, you know. Everybody is wondering, and I finally felt like, holy shit, I I actually have information here that people could benefit from. Yeah. So, the wire we go, and I just started sharing it on all my various groups, and and the reaction was all the same, like, dude. Thanks, man. Like, I haven't heard that, and holy shit, uh, I don't know anybody that's gotten tested. I still—that's still the only person I know. I still don't know another person that actually got a test and came back positive. Okay, I'm gonna look at this other. Any other notes from Hoosiers? Yeah, this is. I, I gotta grab the wheel and get us back on Hoosiers. But that was, dude. Nice work on the coach. That's that is a a. Uh, there's no leadership whatsoever that I trust yeah. right now. There's zero. No, that's something that we are lacking sorely. Yes. We we are the leaders. I think it's by design. That's a whole other podcast, but go ahead. That's it. That's what I'm saying. I think a lot of people are realizing that, and that's part of the problem, and that's why I'm sad Bernie dropped out too. Not that I was, like, all gung-ho Bernie, but it was sort of like, this is a leader who is a leader by default, sort of, because he has good yeah. ideas that are essential whereas there's other leaders that are trying to come to the forefront because they're like i'm a leader and i deserve to be a leader and it's like well that's that's not what makes a great coach you need to be able to like inspire people and have ideas that are worth getting behind so try to do better and it turns out that the leaders that we're looking for are just the people among us who are podcasting and just putting their voice out there or yeah. People in our you gotta lives. You got to be able to rally people. You got to be able to be positive mm-hmm. and and upfront and uh, straightforward and but also stern and uh, yeah, all the adjectives that describe Coach Normandale. All those things. <laughs> here's speak my with some here's authority, my speak with some conviction about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Watch a fifty-year-old in the face if he's asking for it. 
Here's my philosophical question that I had written down. Is it a better feeling to coach a winning team or to play on one? Mm -hmm. Uh, two, two entirely different, uh, flavors there. Yep. What feels better playing on a winning team Uh, or coaching? I'm going to, I'll, I'll get on the coaching Island on that one. I, because if you're coaching it, you've lived a life of it and you have some perspective and you've lost a lot won a lot you've made a lot of mistakes a lot of things have gone well a championship team is a rare alloy of a lot of circumstances and personalities and all those things so to get it and to get it in your hands and then to be there when it pays off, I'm going to take the coaching angle on that one. Mm. Like it feels, I'm sure it's got to feel good to win when you're, when you're a player, but from a satisfaction standpoint, when you're coaching one, you've put your life into it and it happens for you. I think that's, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to hold down that corner. Uh, I get what Dan's saying about, Coaches are generally, they have a little life experience behind them and they just appreciate life more than the kids that they're guiding through a process. But they're also people who are just too old to be on the court and doing the thing that they love anymore. So coaching is just a means to stay connected to the thing that they wish they were still able to do. And, 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 you know, doing that thing that they all love and taking it to the highest level and achieving the highest, you know, uh, gaining the highest victory that, you know, you can attain as a player doing it. I think that's, that would be my choice. That would be the ultimate. Um, Really? You're on the player? You're on the player side? Yeah, because that's, that's, that's the purest level in which the game is experienced. The essence of the game is playing it, is doing it. You're removed when you're on the sidelines to a degree. That when you're part of the team and you're, you know, the, the coach may call the plays, but the players have to execute it. They have to do it. They are the action that actually hmm. brings the title. You've done it. You're the one who has achieved it through your actions and your deeds. That is ultimately, you know, where the glory belongs. I am, I am in the, I'm in the coaching. I'm, I'm with Dan because, because it's, it's the difference between catching a fish or teaching someone how to fish. And Uh, there is no comparison to that feeling that you've taught something that's invaluable. There's just no comparison. Especially when it's a team and you know you've done a good job, then it's not just you accomplishing something, it's your accomplishments are elevating someone else's experience of life. So to me, that always feels like 10 times better. Just to make sure I've got a foot 
one foot on each side of the line here. Uh, <laughs> who's that guy, dude? You. This is a oh, distraction man. because you know we've won. We have. Uh, we are the clear winners. I just made. I just made my passion case uh, for the coach's angle of things, but when, if you are, if you are fortunate enough to be on the floor or on the bench, when the buzzer beater goes in and it's your team, you, you may not experience something more euphoric more blissful, more satisfying, all those words, than when that happened. Like, you might never get there again. You might never, getting married, having a kid, whatever, might not ever get to what that felt like. And I never felt that. I never had a championship or a... Mm, interesting. Good question. Um, Have you ever that had that? moment lives inside you forever, and you... you, you not, it, you can't possibly ever forget it, and the older you get, you must just think of it more fondly if you ever were fortunate enough to be part of something like that. That's true. I don't know that I have something to reference. We won the state championship as a team in gymnastics. I did one event, though. I didn't do all four. So I don't know what that feels like to feel like, uh, Which event did you do, Adams? In high school, I did vault. And okay. I was like fifth Good place. Eh, not really. I was in like <laughs> fifth place regionals before that in all around. So I, I never was like top three. So I don't know what that feels like to be like number one, Olympic gold, under pressure, having to perform. Do your best against the best in the world, and you did it. I don't know what that feels like. I think most people don't, and that's what makes it so compelling or so special. Yeah. The pressure, the pressure part especially. Like, you can do it on your own when no one's watching, but when the whole world is watching, can you do it? Like, it's a whole other element, you know? You know what I can relate to? Huh? I can relate to when Ali comes in the game. Yeah, and the granny underhand foul shots. Two guys foul out, and it's like, you're going in because you have to. Yeah. I remember, oh boy, this could spin out. Uh, (laughs) As a youth, uh, you know what I'm, you know me now. Try to picture me when I was like 16 years old or 15 years old. I'm sure you look exactly the same. Disaster. Oh, I looked a lot of like I looked the same, but uh, disaster. <laughs> I didn't have the. A lot of kids had it. I didn't have the mental uh, framework to play team basketball in high school. Like I ran around and shot. Like I didn't know what was going on when I went in the game. It was confusion, and I. I was just a, I wrote it down here. I was a parade of errors when I went in a basketball game. Right down to like going in the game. If I like, I, not even kidding. Went into a game once without taking my pants off. You know, like <laughs> coach Don Trinrude, he looked down the bench and he was like, Higgs, get in there. 
didn't even know what the fuck to do. I, I didn't. I, I just like got up off the bench and walked out on the floor. They're like, no, you got to go to the table. Because I was so busy like joking around with the guys at the end of the bench. Like I'm not going to play. But then the times that I did get put in was just so. I was man, just deer in the headlights. And yeah, like went in without taking my pants off and like. They had to stop, you know, hold up the game for me to, like, unsnap my pants and get them off. Where the cool guys just ripped their pants off in one move. Like, <laughs> yeah, like the I, thunder down under. I was so inexperienced. <laughs> I took my pants off one snap at a time. And then went in there and was like, what the fuck is going on? You know, you go in when there's a free throw. And I'm like, where do I stand? Who, who do I have? Just... That's every, not your fault. Oh that's, that's coaching error. That's not your fault if you didn't know. I was a fucking disaster. I just wasn't mentally ready. I, I wasn't mentally ready to play team basketball until it was way too late when I was, like, playing intramurals. And even then I wasn't very good. But it wasn't until I was in college where I was actually able to sort of, like, execute a, a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, short of, before that, it was just, like, running around and, like, because I grew up playing by myself in the driveway. All these other kids grew up playing team basketball. I played by myself in the driveway, pretending I was Larry Bird. Like, 3-2-1 three, three, from the corner. You know, I had no concept of the team game. Uh, so that really came through last night when poor Ollie has to go in the game. I just never had the big redemption where I made the free throws that sent us to state, you know. But, oh, uh, he dribbles it off his foot, and he, like... Oh, Ollie, I know. It's tough to watch. But he came through, and that's another thing I love about this movie, is it it is storybook. That's what I'm saying. It wasn't like, oh, and then he missed it. It was like, no, he made it. He made both shots, because they want you to feel good about this movie, and and you fucking do. And it also made me think about the granny shot, and that, that whole thing about how statistically underhand shots are better. Why isn't everyone using them? Because it doesn't look cool. It doesn't look cool. That's why they're not using them. They are statistically proven to be more accurate than, what do you call the, what do you call that? Come on. I'm going to let you dangle on this one. Go ahead. Keep dangling. (laughs) I don't know what that's called. Overhand shot. Yeah. The overhand, yes, they're more they're more consistently accurate than the overhand shot. And was it, it you know, like say what you will, statistics matter. You want to be efficient, you want to be effective. But being a basketball player, being an athlete on some level has always been about being the coolest fucking guy in the school. Sure. And it's about sex appeal and it's about <laughs> Not with Larry Larry Bird did not have sex appeal. I'm sorry, but no. All right. Well, you might not think so, but I'm sure Larry was not lonely. You know, and uh, Ah. even with a perked mullet and a porn stash, Larry was a star of an NBA team in every city he went to. (laughs) He had company if he wanted it. Fine. uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said, the all-time record for NBA scoring based on his skyhook, which was an old-fashioned move. Like, he didn't invent the book shot. He just perfected it. And we were talking about the evolution of the game earlier, and there just came a point where dunking 
and alley-oops and other kinds of moves became so much more fashionable that that became a grandpa shot and a sort of just passe. And maybe it was a combination of like a lot of big men didn't have the touch or the skill to do it as effectively or as efficiently as a Kareem. But a lot of the reason why people don't do it anymore, I think, is because it doesn't look cool in your highlight reel. It's not sexy. It's not sexy. But it's effective. That's sexy. Is it? Um, efficiency is so sexy. Uh... <laughs> okay. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, find... I'm trying... <laughs> I'm trying to find the name of the... The guy that used it... Was it Wilt the Stilt? Who was it that used Rick the... Barry. Who? Rick Barry. I know, but there was another famous player that used it and then stopped using it because it wasn't cool. Oh, oh, that was, it Will. was it Will? Yeah. Possibly. I'm struggling. I Guys, don't... I'm, I don't... I'm, say it, I'm, I'm fading. I'm getting fucking tired. What? Okay. Oh, okay. It's, I've got it. It's 1051. Got a, what time is it? 1051. Holy shit, we've been talking about Hoosiers for three-something hours. I love it. This might be two podcasts. Okay, Andy, I love Whitney. Wait, wait, hold on. Andy, are you okay? Can you go another half an hour? Can I'll you try. eat some chocolate, something to wake you up? We'll inspire you. We'll inspire you. Our Our efficiency will keep you going. Did he say he's going to bed? Me while I play as a fly enthusiasm aimed at your indifference Scan the floor for one tap and do a bobbin hand Any signal coming back on the same band for Rick and Frequency Wavelength How's reception connection? Don't flip the dial, let's see performance It's commercial free, it's commercial free Only thing for sale up here is me and my CD You're free to catch up on all times at the top of your lungs Got a mic and I can turn it up but I can't turn you down Got a mic what I need to do Let's more.